happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 245. 245 episodes, Dr. Fryer, on January 12th, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Executive Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I'm doing okay. I'm hanging in here. It's a little bit wild, you know, with uh, all our COVID numbers high and all kinds of exciting things happening, but we're we're sticking with it. And we had a couple of school districts. Um, well, I guess we'll, we'll wait for the 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 banter after the introduction. I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School just down the road here in Oklahoma City. I'm joined tonight by my two golden retrievers who evidently thought that it was important to supervise dad tonight. And we have been enjoying 60 degree weather after our lake at school actually iced over last week and it got down to 12 degrees. And yeah, it's uh the wonderful winter of 2021. I would think you might be a bit colder than the 60s, Jason. Um, yes. Didn't um, I hear there was an avalanche warning or danger or something like that in downtown or something? Crazy? There, there was, but actually today something really interesting happened. Um, I woke up this morning and um, after I showered, I came back to a phone that was abuzz with text messages because, um, uh, well, text messages and warnings about ice on the road. And, uh, one of my team members at the digital Academy had texted and said that she didn't think she could get out of her driveway. So I ended up uh, getting in my car, um, and driving to work. It took me, usually my, my commute's about 10 minutes. Uh, I did stop for coffee to be clear, but it was closer to 25 minutes, uh, uh, from home to work. And it was just a, overnight last night, we had a, basically a sheet of ice just dropped down on the city of Missoula. And we don't have snow days typically in Montana. Like the only way a snow day impacts us is something in addition to the snow creates a situation. And today the Missoula County Public Schools canceled school. Uh, they were going to start two hours late. And then my understanding um, from second and third hand knowledge was that we're having problems even getting buses out of the bus yard. So um, because the roads were just covered in a sheet of wet ice. And um, I saw two accidents on the way to work. And for a while, I-90, which goes through Missoula, was closed uh, to the east of us because of several accidents um, on the highway. So it kind of looks like what Seattle and Portland look like when there's snow and ice uh, because they're just not prepared for it. Uh, and like, you know, Montana is, but, you know, snow is fine. Cold is fine, really. Um, but when we have that ice and, you know, it's, it's hard to, to sand down every street in a town of our size, uh, even despite the fact that we prepare for winter. So yeah, serious winter time here in lovely Missoula. Peggy is saying she remembers, uh, driving in that kind of ice in Massachusetts. And, and, uh, as I recall, Peggy is a Kalispell alum, so she might even remember some tough weather from Kalispell days, but yeah, that is pretty tough. We, we used to have a lot more ice here <clears throat> when I was at Macworld in 2007 with my cousin, we actually got, we got uh, stuck in Denver because they had almost a foot of ice that was at our airport. It closed our airport for like three days or something. So anyway, we were, thankfully that doesn't happen that often, but yeah, ice, ice is a good reason to stay home. So yeah, could but, agree but more. I don't and... think we're, we're here to necessarily just talk weather. Although it seems like we always need to, I mean, I always, I always feel warmer 
when I, well, I, I always feel better <laughs> about my warmth here when I hear about your, you know, current conditions. Well, I'm, I'm glad I can provide you some perspective, Dr. Fryer. So <laughs> it does. It does. Absolutely. Well, what are um, we going to do tonight? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'd love to talk about the weather more, but I think we actually have a larger agenda. Uh, the Dick Situation Room, we're a podcast that looks at headlines from across the techosphere, and we kind of shoot them through an educational lens, talk about how things might impact schools, teachers, administrators, students, especially as technology evolves. And tonight, we have several categories. A quick IoT article, which is, is super interesting. Uh, some Windows, Apple, Google News are uh, a thing known as the tech correction. We have what I'm calling security-ish tonight. Um, some CES updates that we didn't get to last week. Some content moderation, censorship news, some scalability news, some health and wellness news, some miscellaneous news, and then we'll end tonight with our geek of geeks of the week. Um, Wes, I I didn't realize we actually have like two pages of links now. Uh, is there a particular topic you'd like to start with? I imagine some of these will end up getting booted to next week. I do, and I, and I didn't know where where to put it, uh, and so I think I put it under. Where did I put this under? Censorship content moderation. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, there's a lot here. Uh, this is a Guardian article from January 9th, and I listened to an excellent podcast from – I'd never heard of this before – Tech Won't Save Us, uh, which is which is also excellent. And I think that interview is actually with the author of this article. So the, the author is Simon Parkin. The title of the article is The Trouble with Roblox, the Video Game Empire Built on Child Labor. And – this is incredible. First, let's recognize that Roblox, I, I think, depending upon your metric, but just financially, is the most profitable game company now in the world. Roblox especially grew really fast during the pandemic. I became aware of it mainly because last year, my fifth graders, especially as I was teaching not just fifth and sixth computers, but I was teaching Spanish, I just, kids were talking and I was hearing them, you know, talking about Roblox and I'd heard about it before. Uh, but I, I gained a little bit more understanding about how it's kind of a, a game platform inside a game uh, because folks can – and it's designed for kids to create games. Originally, Roblox was just you know free. Everything was free. You, know, you didn't make money. And then they created their own currency inside Roblox, and folks started to be able to make money. This article talks about kids that started off at age 12 – making like $300,000 US a year and just incredible like amounts of money. And now what you have are teams of adults. And some of these are kids that grew up on Roblox, but teams who are creating these games, officially they say, we're for the kids. And they don't basically provide any kind of protection or management or contracts or really anything. And this goes deeper because the guy who wrote this article is not this kind of necessarily like a tech investigative journalist. He said it wasn't hard, you know, to uncover this kind of thing. And what this, of course, suggests is that we might need some regulation. Right. So we could probably put this under the tech rate, uh, the tech correction uh, headline. But evidently in the history of the United Kingdom of England, either four or five times, Parliament has had to take action to ban like. The company script, when like some kind of a company, you think about the company store, you know, not paying people in dollars or pounds, but in their own currency, because you have to have a thousand dollars worth of currency. If I was hearing the, the podcast about this right, 
in order to trade in. So a lot of kids can't. And a lot of what Roblox people make money on is not just the games. It's like the bling and the stuff that you wear. This is a place to hang out. And this really is the metaverse. That's one of the things they say in the podcast that I'll link here um, is that this is probably the best example of a metaverse. We've heard you know Facebook talking about as they change their name to meta. They pay 35 cents on the dollar. So you can buy $1,000 worth of credit. You can earn that much. But when you cash it in, they're giving you 35 cents for every dollar that has been purchased. And they're just making money hand over fist. So this is absolutely child labor at this point. It is really messy. It evolved over time, like I said, to where they, they started off not having uh, money at all, and then they did, but they didn't put these things in there. And then content moderation is a freaking nightmare. And they said everybody they talk to, whether they're an adult developer or they're a kid, they talk about the trouble with abuse, with grooming kids, you know, with sexual predators and inappropriate content, and just really a nightmare. So we had tried to share a, quote, parent university session on this maybe two years ago. Uh, it's actually the only one we've ever had that no one came to. And then during the pandemic, we discovered how great it was to do them on Zoom. And that's what we have done the last couple, you know, on Zoom. So I think uh, we're we're possibly going to do one in, in a month or so for our parents on this. But it's a huge issue. A lot of parents and adults don't even know what Roblox is, haven't heard of it before. According to the article, half of kids meaning under age 18 kids. I don't know if it's like teenagers, 13, but anyway, half in the United States have Roblox account. That's incredible. It's way bigger than Minecraft. It is mind-bogglingly huge. And when you start talking about the, the amount of money that we're discussing here, you know, it just, it has a, a whole host of issues. So have you been aware of Roblox before, Jason? And did you invest when they went public? Because they actually went public a while back. And no, and well, I mean, yes, I've heard of it, but this whole concept is really new to me. And, um, I, well, I mean, I guess the, uh, speaking, I, you're right. This, this definitely is, is also, also a tech correction article, but, um, it, it's blowing my mind a little bit that this isn't being covered more widely in the media. Yeah, this Guardian article is really sort of an expose that's been getting quite a bit of traction. And then, like I said, I'm going to link this podcast here in just a second. And uh, it's just the when you initially hear it and you think maybe, well, is this click, you know, not, not clickbait, but is this like, you know, are they overstretching it a little bit, child labor, whatever? No, man, it it is. It's legit. And there's some real, you know, heartrending stories of, of kids who've had like these just, you know, verbal agreements. Oh, yeah, we'll give you 10 percent. And then the, then this team decides, well, we're going to put all the under 18 kids just on salary and then we're going to keep the, the other amounts. And it rem I'm going to actually send a tweet to one of my favorite animated YouTubers, the odd one out. Uh, James Ralston, one of my kids, again, uh, maybe two years ago, shared shared it with me. And he has a really nice video about don't get tricked online. He talks about uh, MFNs, which are multi-something networks. It's basically trying to get YouTubers who are ascendant to, to give a part of their money and they do promises. And anyway, he has a small little part of this video targeted like, I want to have it. I want to challenge him to do one about Roblox because so many kids watch his videos and Roblox. There can be, you know, I think some real positive experiences here, but 
I think the overall cautionary note for parents and teachers is to be aware and to be engaged and to know that there there are you know issues with with content and with interactions that are happening on the platform. I'm not saying everybody needs to go drop their account tomorrow, but also for students who are creating games or dabbling in that, we really do need to protect kids much in the way that with esports, you know, kids need agents. They need to be, you know, if, if you're a major Fortnite player and stuff, make, you know, making, you know, thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars yeah. at these tournaments, you know, you've become a professional esports athlete and you need to be protected and have counsel and, and, and legal help and things like that. And, and kids, like I said, there's some making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, on Roblox creating, you know, virtual gear that kids will wear and buy. And, um, and then there's also, I think I have an article in here about NFTs, but there's, there's theft happening where people will, you know, steal some, some code that kids have written or others have written and then they'll, you know, sell it, but then they'll have the money to promote it with advertised advertising dollars. Anyway, it is a it is an absolute wild west. And unfortunately, it is, you know, screaming for some regulatory uh, oversight and also, I think, for the company itself um, to do some self-regulation and to be more transparent and to make some some changes. So kudos to The Guardian. Uh, and I think the Observer maybe uh, in the UK that originally published this uh, and shout out to Simon Parkin for an outstanding article that really highlights an important issue, which surprisingly, and this isn't always the case with articles, this probably affects every single person listening to this, because if half the kids in America have a Roblox account like that is a very, you know, that, that's a very big deal that, that touches a lot of folks. We're not just talking about, hey, there might be one kid in your class who's doing this. No, there's probably a lot of students who are on the platform and engaged at, at some level with, with the program. Sure. Do you want to cover either of those other two censorship articles? Uh, let's see. Um, sure. I guess, uh, this one was from December 22nd. Uh, this was from the times Amazon agreed to only allow five-star reviews for Xi's book in China. If I'm saying his name, right. So president Xi, uh, spelled X I, is the president of China now the president for life? Do we really call that kind of person a president? Um, and so he's got a book, and <clears throat> as we know, China is pretty um, locked down in terms of the amount of dissent that they permit. And another example of how you know companies have to make compromises to continue to do business in China. And so, you know, Amazon just deleted all the reviews that weren't five star of the president's book. Um, and so we got that under this, you know, censorship content moderation heading. And then the last one we've got there is from NBC News. This is on January 2nd. Um, I think this is a very positive thing, but it certainly is a politically heated thing. Um, the headline is Twitter permanently suspends Marjorie Taylor Greene's personal account. Green's account was suspended over, quote, repeated violations of Twitter's COVID-19 misinformation policy. I didn't put the link in the show notes, but I actually signed a petition today. Maybe I can uh, dig it out. But there's um, this one was targeted at YouTube. Um, but we've got some folks being very vocal and being very specific about the kinds of changes which technology companies need to make 
Um, I think it is good that Twitter is taking these kinds of steps. I think we've mentioned it on the show before. And of course, we're not a political show, but sometimes we talk about the ways that tech intersects with politics. Um, President Trump has been banned for life from Twitter. So regardless of whether he runs for office again, is elected again, uh, Twitter claims at this point, which I'm sure could change, but at this point, that they're not going to allow him back on. And so this is a pretty big deal for them to ban a sitting U.S. representative uh, forever you know, from the platform. So any thoughts about this extremely benign and not at all politically polarized and sensitive topic, Dr. Knife? Well, I, I, what I would say is that, and maybe this is the, the, a good spin then to the tech correction too, that um, I don't know what the, 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 the big picture answer is here, but the bottom line is, is that for me, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about maybe changing the way we regulate or making uh, platforms more individually responsible as opposed to their users. What I would say is that if we get rid of the protections for platforms and say that individuals aren't responsible, what platforms are, I think you actually will see a lot more banning and, and internal regulation that part of what's allowed this to happen is uh, the, that some of these platforms have become platforms for uh, perhaps uh, 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 unpopular or false information is because uh, we really don't make platforms police themselves, right? By law, the individuals are responsible, not the platforms. And this is where the debate, I think, becomes a little convoluted because the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, clearly what's happening right now isn't working, right? The free-for-all that exists just isn't working. And um, I think there's plenty of evidence of that whether it's regulation that does it or Silicon Valley regulates itself is still a, a very much an open question. But the bottom line is, is that um, I'm not, uh, I, this, this takes us, whether you agree with the politics of the individual or not, this takes us a step closer to perhaps coming up with what our next step is to figure out where these tools um, fit in with our larger society. Because as of right now, I'm not entirely certain we understand yet right we've got a lot of evidence about this but i'm not sure if we understand yet and um uh, it, it's for smarter people than 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 uh than i am but i i hope it helps us continue our conversation along so we can figure out what this means in the in the, in the long-term big picture absolutely in our chat room peggy george is observing that uh marjorie green still has a business account and so she's got you know, those, those separate things. So I, I guess she still has, has a voice there. Yep. Um, I went ahead and dropped the link to that podcast episode. Um, I had never heard of this tech won't save us. It is a left leaning podcast as part of the, uh, is it the Harbinger? Uh, anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it wrong. Um, but anyway, it's part of a podcast network and the title is how Roblox exploits children with Quentin Smith. So it was, it's excellent, excellent. So just add that to your feed uh, if you'd like to get a really good in-depth in, you know, discussion and uh, exploration of all those issues. There you go. All right, where to next, sir? Well, let's do some uh, kind of techie tech news. Uh, first of all, um, a really interesting article from, let's see, this is yesterday's Apple Insider that uh, Apple's filed a patent that uh, could uh, allow Apple glasses to adjust their lenses to match each user's prescription. And 
Um, that is a fascinating concept to me, not only because how cool is it that, you know, that, that, uh, uh, prescription eyeglass wearers like myself, and I, I don't wear them very often on the podcast because I moved to, um, I moved to, uh, uh, bifocals, um, a couple of, 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 of months ago. No, like a year ago now. I don't like them yet. I, I can't get them figured out. Um, so I am going to move to a pair of computer glasses. In fact, I got to try on some frames that I, I have on trial tonight even. Um, but, um, the Apple glasses, which has been a long rumored thing that there's not really any confirmation for direct confirmation for from Apple. One of the patents they recently filed has, some kind of, 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 of dynamic material in the lenses themselves that will, uh, uh, be able to sense and then adapt around the visual needs of the user. And I'm less interested in this technology from the standpoint of Apple glasses. Although, you know, I try anything. I very briefly tried Google Glass back in the day. Um, uh, 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 and, and again, I want to note very briefly, uh, tried it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have paid a thousand dollars for it, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But the, uh, what I like about this concept is that as a glasses user that has a lot of use cases, imagine for a moment if the lenses could be dynamic in my particular use case, right? So when I'm looking at a screen, it gives me the computer glass prescription. When I'm reading something close up to my face, it moves towards my cheaters. Um, and when I'm out on the road, it moves towards something different there. And that is extremely exciting to me as a, as a, uh, uh, someone who needs prescription eyewear. And I have been very lightly considering maybe getting the, the surgery. Um, uh, uh, done on my eyes, laser surgery to, to correct for something. My dad was very early, uh, a laser surgery user, um, because he had had very, 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 very thick, uh, awkward glasses for a long time and hated them. I don't mind wearing glasses, but it's, it's harder for me now because I'm in the, um, position where I have to use three or four different, um, you know, three or four different pairs to get the job done. So good on Apple. I really do think it would be a revolutionary thing. Um, to have dynamic glasses, not just for the tech part of it, uh, uh, which they talk about in the article, but I think as a prescription uh, advancement, super interesting and, and super uh, um, uh, potentially useful for people like myself. Um, I would note, though, that, you know, Apple uh, has a lot of health things going on right now. Um, there are a lot of sensors they want to work into. Um, the Apple Watch, uh, my understanding is that it may be a year or two before we see any additional sensors packed into the platform, just because that they, they, uh, that low-ish hanging fruit has been done with the watch. Um, I know they're working on, um, some blood sugar technology over at Apple, uh, that it could be a variety of ways, including via the watch check blood sugar. That would be something very interesting to me as I wear a, as a diabetic, a, a sensor, um, on, on my body all the time to constantly measure my blood sugar, which made a huge difference in my health and quality of life. Um, but the thing that, that, um, I know is that these things take time and whenever they involve health, there's a lot more regulation involved for, for good reason. So probably coming to a pair of glasses near you, but maybe not that soon. On a personal note, my Apple watch screen broke this weekend and I actually, I had touched it at the edge of it and I got cut. And then late, like later that same day, then the entire, I don't know how, how this happens. I didn't drop it or whatever, but anyway, the whole front, top just broke it's it's gone so 
<clears throat> if you didn't know, it's like $145 to get a new screen for your Apple Watch. And it turns out that I had the Gen 3 and a Gen 4 on Swap is like $20 more than that. So my Gen 4 Apple Watch is going to be coming on Saturday. Um, I'm really getting into the tracker stuff, though. Uh, I went ahead and got back into my Fitness Pal, which I had done, you know, years ago. Um, I think I have a geek. I don't know if I have a geek of the week about this now, uh, but there's an app called WellTory, which is like story, but it's well, WellTory. It's like AI that has all this data that comes in. And so anyway, sleep trackers, food, uh, you know, a little bit of exercise, weight. It's really pretty amazing. What I'm hoping, of course, is that these companies won't be hacked and all my data is, you know, out in the world. But Apple Watch is fantastic. Um, I'm glad to see that continue to advance. And I totally believe this is something... You know, it's not practical at this point, I don't think, for anybody to to say to, you know, hey, everybody's got to have an Apple Watch. You know, we have one-to-one schools, but I've never, I have not heard of a school where everyone has to have an Apple Watch. Um, so anyway, the educational side of this in the classroom is not really there. But personally, it is just so wonderful to have more data at your fingertips and be able to make choices based upon that data and that feedback and to strive to lead a healthier life. So Yay for health and privacy. Great. Awesome. So some more kind of hard tech news. Um, and somehow I ended up in a different part of the doc. A um, couple of uh, quick Windows articles. Well, first, um, you know, family IT guy reporting for duty. And I'm getting an uptick in um, uh, questions about Windows 11. And uh, I will tell you, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast, that I, I do have Windows 11 installed on a laptop that's not technically compatible with, although I've been receiving updates on it. And my early uh, response to it is is that it's probably going to be a pretty good operating system at some point. It's pretty wonky right now, and I have another article about that in a moment. But uh, I came across this article from something called the Tech Times um, that the first uh, 10 things you want to do after, uh, uh, you know, starting with your Windows 11 laptop, because I a lot of people did get Windows 11 laptops in December and January. And um, a lot of this stuff is kind of obvious uh, if you are otherwise a techie person, but um, just some things you may want to think about um, uh, uh, when you're using a new Windows 11 device. Um, the other thing I also think is interesting, this goes out to our, our friends in the IT, school IT world out there. Um, Windows 11, according to Tech Radar, uh, could soon run better on uh, uh, less powerful hardware. And one of my concerns uh, about um, the update to Windows 11, we talked about this several times uh, when Windows 11 was first released in beta in 2021, is that uh, not only did it... Uh, eliminate a lot of hardware because you needed a special security uh, chip uh, in the computer that you probably provide some advantage, but eliminate a lot of relatively recent uh, hardware, the kind of stuff you find in schools. Um, but also, um, I, I've read a lot of reports that Windows 11 was initially pretty sluggish on modest hardware. And that was one of the things I loved about Windows 10 was that it felt a lot faster, a lot snappier on older machines when it was released in 2015 than I thought Windows 7 or 8 felt for me as, as, a, as an end user. And um, they're working on updates to the uh, uh, file manager and Windows Explorer and all the kind of functional pieces to be more responsive on modest hardware. And I would imagine that's of, of great interest to schools. Um, I don't know of a single school that's moved to Windows 11. Uh, that's mostly a timing issue. I can't imagine that um, 
that IT directors would want to move, you know, whole labs or 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 uh, most users to a new operating system in the middle of the school year. I do estimate that that many might update next summer since the update is free. But um, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Sounds good. Are you are you running eleven on a? A laptop currently? I am. Yeah, I have a. Um, it, it's it's too old to technically be supported, but it runs just fine. Um, on there, and I'm doing it mostly because I expect to get you know that my staff might have to deal with student support tickets with Windows 11, and it's mostly fine. Um, and it's got a lot of the Windows uh a uh, uh, 10 kind of feature sets to it. Um, the thing I don't like about it is I think the interface looks a little cartoony for my taste, and I like the nice. Um, I thought very uh, modern-looking interface of, of of Windows 10. I felt like it, it this kind of returns back to a bit more of the more cartoony interface of Windows 7. And um, I, you know, Windows 7 was a revelation for me as a Windows user at the time. But to be honest, um, I, I like the Windows 10 kind of overall motif better. Well, that reminds me of an article. I think you put in, or maybe I just saw this in your Twitter feed. Did you do the one about the company switching to Chromebooks? Was it from? No, I didn't do that. Um, Although let me, uh, I'll throw that in there. Um, uh, I only kind of remember the article. Okay. I can get it. I just, I think I just retweeted it and good old Miguel Gulen. (laughs) Oh, had retweeted it. So uh, let's see where it was. Okay, yeah, a hotel chain um, in Norway um, uh, uh, took their Windows PCs after a, a ransomware attack and converted them all to Chrome OS using Cloud Ready. And we've talked about Cloud Ready probably uh, a, a dozen times on this podcast. I love it. It's one of the most amazing things that I, I, I have uh, discovered uh, on the Internet in the last four or five years. But for those unaware, Cloud Ready is an implementation of Chromium OS, which is the open source version uh, uh, of Chrome OS. And it used to be that you could install Chromium OS, but it was a little complicated because, um, um, it, it, because the, to be frank, you, you had to, you know, hack it onto a machine. And there was some, you know, there were some interesting kind of hacky versions of that, but a company called Neverware um, took Chromium OS and repackaged it to be installable on, uh, I think it's, they're up to like 250 machines that, you know, older Windows and, and Mac machines. But because the Chrome OS operating system, you know, works pretty decently on relatively modest hardware, you could take a six, seven, eight, nine year old laptop and put uh, 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 cloud ready on it. And it felt as snappy, if not more snappy than a, a, a modern day low end Chromebook. And so, uh, this hotel chain, uh, Nordic choice hotels, um, had a, uh, terrible, um, uh, ransomware attack in December. And they decided that rather than just cleaning all the machines, which they did for about 250 windows laptops, the rest of the 3,500 machines, they just wiped and put Cloud Ready on there. And uh, an important note, Cloud Ready is now owned by Google. Uh, they were picked up and acquired by Google. And right now, you can go to neverware.com and download a home version. It's not supported. Uh, uh, it, there's no uh, a technical support included in that. 
But if you have an old Windows uh, laptop sitting around, also works great with desktops, uh, all-in-ones, um, and most major PCs in the last 10, 12 years are, are supported by it. It's a really great way to get a dirt cheap Chrome device. And I would also note for the record that I know a lot of families that had older Windows laptops at the beginning of remote learning um, now nearly two years ago. And this was a way for them to get, a, 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 you know, to take an older laptop that wasn't really working for them and install a Chrome OS-like experience on there. And it was, you know, useful again. So really interesting use of that software. Excellent. Hey, and we don't do ads here on the EdTech Situation Room, but sometimes we do just take a break to ask something unrelated. And you've got the question now from the chat room. Peggy wants to know, inquiring minds want to know, Jason, why do you have all these books stacked up behind you in such an interesting little format there? Well, um, that's my uh, that's my current book stack. Um, and I would say... Like books you're going to read? Yeah, that uh, I don't have a good bookshelf in my office. So that's kind of where they're, they're, they're stuck right now. I'm looking at... Um, in fact, I know you know what that book is. Um, looking at the stack of books, probably the bottom third are read or I've, I've done what I want to do with the book. The middle third, I'm probably not going to read, but I'm going to keep around for now. Like, I got it thinking it was something else, and the, and the top third is untouched. So um, they're part of my read. I also have a ridiculously large stack of books on my stand in my bedroom downstairs. So, um, um, yeah, I... Um, I, I, I could retire right now and spend the rest of my natural life, uh, and probably not get through the books that I've purchased and, 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 and with the intent of reading, I'm just not there yet. So that's my stack. In addition to that little side note, uh, as we're a little bit past halfway through the show, we do want to let everyone know we have a sub stack. I didn't say that at the beginning of the show, but you can go to edtechsr.substack.com. I think, uh, yes, that is it. And, um, Currently, we are going to be we are sending out uh, show notes after each show, but there may be some other good things coming. So feel free to um, join the Substack. You can also help sponsor the show by becoming a paid Substack subscriber, but you can also be a free subscriber. We're just going to kind of dabble with that. We haven't done Patreon or anything like that for the show. Hey, we've only done 245 episodes. So anyway, that's that is something new. Um, I want to go real quick, if I can, down to the Googles. We have uh, some really good security articles, and there's a bunch of good Google ones. This one's quick and just kind of kind of fun. It's kind of funny. Uh, this is a Mashable article from January the 8th. A Google Street View car spotted a missing criminal, and it led to an arrest. <laughs> so, um, you know, amidst all the doom and gloom about facial recognition and, and how bad they can uh, – how bad it can be, et cetera – um, this guy <laughs> in the article, he says something like he hadn't called his mom in years. Um, he said, I hadn't phoned my family for 10 years. <laughs> he's been living as a chef. Uh, he's evidently, um, a mafioso, uh, Gia, oh, Giacchino Gamino, he's 61 years old, and he was wanted, a member of the Sicilian Mafia. Escaped from an Italian jail in 2002. In 2003, received a life sentence for murder. So the photo that came from Google Street View um, was uh, evidently turned over to police, and 
there you go. We've heard the stories too. I have about, you know, London, you walk outside, you know, you're on a, you're on multiple cameras, things like that. So anyway, a good story. Um, I'm not saying surveillance everywhere is, is a great thing, but I did think that was kind of, kind of interesting. So if yep, you've played around with, with street view very much, you see that there's a, I mean, generally they have faces blurred out and stuff like that. So I don't think that would necessarily be a common thing, but you know, in the wide world of so much Google street view photographs and imagery, you know, there's a good, a good story that is, has come out of it. Um, <laughs> do you want to do any other Google ones? I mean, what I'm doing tonight and I did this last time is I'm just kind of turning them bold as we, as we talk about them. Um, do you want to pick up any other Google articles? I definitely yeah, want to talk there, about there's, uh, Yeah, there's, there's two, at least two I want to do. The first one is this is a public service announcement because somehow this slipped my view. Um, I noticed the other day in the Google File Stream app, which is called Google Drive for Desktop, that you can now utilize personal accounts for that. And what is magical about the Google file stream app is that you can download, you can have a desktop interface for your Google drive, but you can do it. Uh, you can do it without downloading everything. So if you have, well, I mean, as an example of this, uh, I have a ridiculously large amount of uh, uh, files in my work Google account because I happen to own all of our archives, right? So uh, we're working uh, to, to move that to uh, shared drives. And we also are going to get a second copy of it and do, do good data housekeeping so we can keep our archives uh, for the program. But right now that's all in my drive. So I have 15 terabytes sitting in, in my work Google Drive right now. And if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, they'd figure it out because you can reassign drives to others. But um, it's a lot. And if I downloaded the old-fashioned version of Google Drive from back in the day, um, one of the ways that, that that would be complicated is that I'd have to choose which folders, and it's a big mess, and... And even if you have the whole folder, you then have to download uh, all the folder. And it, it, I don't think it's very useful. Um, so what Google Filestream does is that it, it, it's, it's also a desktop app, your Mac or your PC. And it, it, it doesn't uh, download the file until you need it. So it keeps a, the directory structure and you can use it like a regular drive, but it doesn't take up all that space or the bandwidth to download all those things. Well, it used to be you'd have to use a Google Workspace account, education, business account uh, to be able to do that. So uh, paid for account or one of the free education accounts. Well, I didn't notice, um, according to uh, this article from Chrome Unboxed in October 2020, that you can um, now do that with personal accounts. And in addition to that, um, I noticed, and I only noticed this last week for the first time, you can actually uh, 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 sync multiple accounts to your drive. So in my home uh, uh, desktop computer, I have uh, my personal account, and then also I have a couple of workspace accounts um, obviously my work one, but also a couple of project ones that I utilize quite a bit. And now I can keep all those on my desktop at home and not have to worry about, um, uh, you know, trying to uh, only access, you know, uh, one of them. I can have multiple synced to my local account. It's really, really amazing. And um, I thought it was a, a pretty wonderful way to uh, um, to utilize that 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 really great service. I'll pick up uh, the other Google article I put in. This is Ars Technica from January 10th. After <laughs> This is a pretty, you know, uh, sarcastic headline. Uh, 
after ruining Android messaging, Google says iMessage is too powerful. So some Google execs took to Twitter this last week, uh, criticizing how there's a lot of pressure now on kids because, you know, if you're not using an iPhone and you're texting, you know, your message, you know, is a different color. And, you know, iMessage is, is one of these things that Apple has used as as a feature to try to, you know, encourage people to stay on the platform and doesn't exactly lock people in. But anyway, uh, this was this was interesting. But what was really I think on point in the article was the fact that Google doesn't seem to have it together with messaging. They said there's basically 10 different platforms that Google has right now that can be used for messaging. Um, and so um, here's the, the list of them. Uh, we could, we should have Jason say how many of these he, he uses. Um, Google messages, RCS that was being promoted. This is the one actually Google's trying to, it's like a carrier standard, which is kind of mm -hmm. weird for a Google company to be promoting it, but it would be better than, than just the current SMS. Google Chats, Hangouts, Google Voice, Google Photos Messages, Google Pay Messages, Google Maps Business Messages, Google Stadia Messages, and Google Assistant Messaging. And that's not to include, you know, the old stuff that they have killed especially Hangouts, right? I mean, we love StreamYard. We've been using StreamYard now for quite a while on the show, but we started off with Hangouts. And anyway, it I don't know why. It's, it's just because Google is so big and they have innovation in different areas. But, but messaging does seem to be something that they haven't, you know, done a great job competing with, with Apple and iMessage. And I do think that we need certainly a secure messaging option to SMS, but it doesn't appear that we're going to have a ubiquitous one that's going to have the reach and, you know, just like emails everywhere, SMSs everywhere. And it doesn't seem like we're going to be escaping that anytime soon. There it is. And one more quick one. This is a recent one. And as of today, Chrome Unbox reported a wonderful new feature available in Google Meet. Um, there's now live translated captions in Google Meet. And this was a feature that was uh, very aggressively promoted by Microsoft in their Teams event. And I've actually seen a couple of different wonderful educational applications, not the least of which is that if you have students and or parents that are not uh, speakers of the language that you are speaking in, you can start a meet and have live translations of text back and forth. It's still not perfect, uh, just like any live translation technology is not perfect, but I've always been super impressed about how accurate the um, the live uh, captioning is in Google Meets. It works extremely well, and I would assume that the live uh, translation works equally as, as well, considering it's, it's a live uh, translation. And um, uh, wonderful uh, uh, technology, I think, and something you know pretty pretty interesting and amazing um, for us to consider. So uh, uh, check that out. We haven't. I don't think really talked about accessibility that much on the show, certainly lately. Uh, it's a huge deal um, at, you know, public university, public schools, but everybody, whether you're public or private <clears throat> should definitely be attuned to accessibility. And the, we, I think we have mentioned on the show, it's a bit weird and creepy to think like every word we're saying, like now in Facebook, when you, when you see the live stream there, it's all being transcribed. Um, and I think, you know, YouTube is doing the same kind of thing, but from an accessibility standpoint, absolutely great. Sometimes funny to see how it spells things. It's not quite getting knife or right. I noticed that today when I was sharing the Facebook post, but anyway, the March of, uh, 
artificial intelligence and machine learning to impacting the ways that we share and communicate and especially with speech. So positive. Awesome. Uh, an article that ties to the Google one talking about messaging is actually up in the Apple section. I think that's where I put it, or maybe I put it down in the miscellaneous. Uh, it's a T-Mobile one. Um, it's under maybe... security, middle of security. Oh, middle of security. Look at that. <clears throat> Nine to five Mac, January 10th. T-Mobile begins blocking iPhone users from enabling iCloud private relay in the U.S. So here's an article that, you know, is going to require a little bit of uh, explanation and investigation. Can't just read the headline here. <clears throat> so there are different um, different efforts that people are making today to try and provide for some encryption in messaging. Uh, why is this important? Well, you know, who's reading your mail? There's folks that want to read your mail, right? <laughs> the government wants to be able to read mail whenever, you know, and I'm saying mail as a metaphor, any kind of message, the government wants to be able to read it. But other folks are interested in doing that as well. <clears throat> well, Apple has come out with iOS 15 with a new feature called the private relay feature to quote, give an additional layer of privacy by ensuring no one can view the websites that you visit. Um, and so, T-Mobile, this is something that I guess the, um, the, the platforms have to permit. And so the relay, it's so, it reminds me a little bit of Tor. So the first relay is sent by an Apple server, and then it's through a third-party operator. <clears throat> this was announced at WWDC in June of 2021. Um, and it says it was slated for inclusion in iOS 15. I think that means that it's here, right? Are we on iOS 15? We are, um, Yeah. So the network uh, has to, uh, I guess, support this protocol. And so Apple, at the time of this article, had not commented on it. Um, the author says it's worrisome to see carriers like T-Mobile interfering with system-level um, iOS features, and that there's not much that Apple can do. Um, but, yeah, this is Apple continuing to try and, I think, put, push the you know, pedal to the gas on privacy, um, and it's interesting how, how this intersects in this case with cell phone carriers and with the kind of protocols and things like that, that they are, are turning on or turning off. So I had not actually heard of iCloud private relay before, and this is probably not impacting a lot of us, but it, it does make me think if we should be trying to encourage our colleagues or our families to message, you know, we've got different, you know, group text messages, um, group text groups that we have, you know, for our family and stuff. And it's just easy to use. <clears throat> but if we were more more concerned about privacy, then we would probably, I guess, be on Telegram and we would be trying to message there. I'm, I'm not not at that point. So any no, thoughts about I, this, Jason, or, or about just privacy and encryption for messaging? Yeah, the uh, well, I mean, do, do, you know, I'm 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 glad you mentioned because I I th that there's like the subheadline of this is that that headline obviously exists and it's mostly true, but it's way more nuanced uh, when you go into the article itself about what T-Mobile is actually limiting. But I mean, it, it, I am convinced that Apple is doing the work that Google and Microsoft are not to try to build platforms that are privacy based, and that's one of the reasons why I've moved uh, my personal stuff back to uh, Apple platforms. Um, I. I, I, 
I, I, I think I'm not sure what I would use the, the relay for, um, unless I was, well, I mean, I, I, I do private browsing and VPNs for, you know, most of my, um, you know, most of my sensitive searching, although by sensitive, I just mean stuff I don't want to be marketed to over and over again. Um, cause I, I don't really have a ton of need for super safe and secure, uh, uh, browsing, but, um, it, it is interesting to me that that can be disabled by a carrier. That's the part that, that I, I took most concern from. It reminds me a couple of years back. It's been a while and I'm not sure if this is still the case, but Verizon was adding tracking, uh, uh, uh code to, uh, internet traffic to, I, to help identify users. So even if you were using, um, uh, uh, private searching, uh, or other, uh, uh, kind of clean techniques to search, you were still trackable by something that Verizon was adding to, to traffic for that purpose. But, um, you know, just remember there are a lot of people between you and the internet and a lot of those people can, you know, sniff what you're doing. So truly private internet use is, uh, pretty difficult to, to pull off, uh, 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 even if you're very careful. Especially if you want to log in to something like email or, you know, an account. Um, well, we are almost, we got 10 minutes to go to the top of the hour, 12 minutes actually. Um, and we just may get to about half of the articles tonight. Um, I'd like to go to a security one and then maybe we'll have time for a couple others. But wow, <laughs> we talk about security quite a bit. And I know that probably sometimes, you know, it, it, it starts to sound like the wah, 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 wah with the hacks and, and all this. And you hear, oh, the biggest one ever. All right, here we go. We talked about this either last week or the week before, the Log4j hack. Wired has an article on January 10th called the FTC wants to find Log4 fast. It won't be easy. <clears throat> and as we talked about recently on the show, uh, this is a vulnerability in open source software that has to do with, I think, activity logging. Um, and evidently, it is freaking everywhere. I mean, in millions and millions of systems. And this article says it's not just in companies' direct systems. It's also in, like, third-party systems that they rely on. And so this is forcing companies to say, eh, do we wait for this third party to patch this, which we don't have direct ability to patch this in the server, or do we shut this down and re-architect how our IT infrastructure is working? It's just, it's really hard. Um, and the FTC is really pushing to try to get this fixed, but it is a very, very complicated issue. In that article, there's a link to a CNBC article from December 16th, uh, 2021, <clears throat> which actually has a video. I think the video is about maybe 15 minutes long. And the headline here is, SISA uh, or CISA, I don't know how to say that, C-I-S-A, sorry, uh, says the log four security flaw is the most serious she's seen in her career. Um, so this is an interview with Jen Easterly. Uh, CISA or SISA, however you say it, uh, was created, I think, I want to say in like 2018. And she says in the video, it was created for something exactly like this. And so the government is really trying to support you know, enterprises of all flavors as they try to patch this thing. But, you know, she's been a, an IT security professional over a decade. And she says this is absolutely the worst thing that she's seen. And it's going to um, impact us not just for days or weeks, but maybe months and years. It just really is going to take a long time. And I don't, you know, didn't come on the show tonight to be, you know, 
Debbie Downer here, but folks, cyber attacks, we have only scratched the surface of what we are going to see, according to my crystal ball, in the years ahead. And these kind of vulnerabilities, which can give evidently hackers, you know, direct control access over all kinds of systems. And this can be stuff, you know, in terms of our infrastructure, energy systems, just an unbelievably large number of systems. So this, you know, caused a whole bunch of, of headaches and late nights for IT professionals when it came out. But this isn't something that's like, hey, let's do a full court press this weekend and get this thing buttoned up. No, this is something that is massive and huge. And both the article and then that video in the CNBC uh, article from December, I highly recommend. Um, and so what do you do about this personally? Well, you certainly make sure if you're responsible for IT infrastructure that, you know, your systems are patched, but also that the systems you rely on, because a lot of us in schools, you know, don't host our student information system locally. Thankfully, you know, we have a cloud provider that does that. But is that cloud provider, you know, have they taken those steps? Are they taking those steps? So having your backups uh, and then just trying to have, you know, redundancy and uh, plan in place, just like we've talked about with ransomware and other kinds of cyber attacks. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if your systems are down? You don't have access to them. You know, that can happen through a ransomware attack. It could happen through other kinds of cyber attacks as well. This is part of life today. And so we need to, as personal, as individuals, as families, <clears throat> try to do the best we can to maintain backups and use good passwords and, you know, follow those kind of safe procedures, but then also have some plans in place for what's going to happen, you know, worst case scenario, if, um, you know, we're, we're affected by some kind of, uh, of outage and, Certainly businesses that are relying upon these kinds of technological systems, um, you know, this is this is serious stuff. So hopefully the Montana uh, Digital Academy is not completely reliant upon systems that have the log 4J security flaw. But if they were, I'm sure the director would not be wanting to talk about it right now on the show. So yeah. anyway, rest rest how assured long, that how long, how long can until I, I can retire? Um, <laughs> the what I would also say too is that um, you know in general every size educational institution needs a security uh, security response plan and there are good templates you can download from the internet. Um, but you know do that now. Don't wait around for um, um, don't wait around for, uh, uh, the attack, um, uh, for the, the event to happen. All right. Would you like to hit another article before we geek of the week it? Let's see here. Um, oh, this is just a funny one. Um, so, uh, president Biden wants to every American to have access to COVID tests at home COVID tests. And let's, Ignore the supply chain issues for a moment. Apparently, they're going to launch a website by this weekend where people can log in and, well, actually not log in, request um, request test. And the reason why I find this to be incredibly amusing is that, um, you know, I, I've, I've been part of projects where poorly thought through websites couldn't handle the traffic of 25 people at a time. 
Um, I can't imagine. And, and by the way, as of last week, I know for a fact there was uh, there was no progress on, on 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 bringing this site up. And you may remember that one of the kind of memes back from the initial Obamacare days was that it, you know the site was so popular you couldn't get into it, kept crashing. Um, and they had to bring in a, a third a third party to come in and, and stabilize it. Um, I'm gonna bet. Um, I was gonna say dollars to donuts, but d- donuts are more than than uh, a, a dollar now. Maybe it's donuts to dollars that um, uh, that there's probably not gonna be a stable website up uh, in the next week or two to order COVID tests. And I, I do still think that there's some vast disconnects on the part of government in general about the complexities of the internet. I mean, our story several weeks back about the governor that thought that looking at a site source code with your browser was hacking a website. Um, you know, it's, it's a little more complex to create that. And let's say that even a small percentage, like, uh, you know, uh, 30 million Americans, less than, than 10% of Americans decide to jump on that site this weekend to order tests. And I'm guessing the number's more. I just can't imagine a website developed from scratch in the last 10 days is going to have that kind of, uh, that, that kind of scalability. So, you know, don't, don't, don't overpromise with tech. So Cloudflare and Akamai and these kinds of, uh, you know, content delivery networks can be employed to uh, assist with some of that, but yeah, that's going to be a pretty huge, huge burden. Well, um, anything else that we want to, Try and hit quickly. Um, now, there's more stuff, but we can just kind of probably carry carry those through. So, would you like to geek of the week it? Yeah, I've got an extra geeky one to share tonight, and it, it probably applies to you know relatively few people. But um, I, I I've I've been working on a an experiment for my in laws. Uh, they live in a very rural area in Montana, and right and their hacked together internet solution um, has has stopped working uh, for a variety of reasons that I I don't uh, really want to discuss here. But the um, uh, uh, I, I'm working on an alternative for them. At some point, they're probably going to be on Starlink, but not yet. Uh, they're just not quite there uh, yet. But um, there's a, a, a one of the things that that I have done with some older routers I have sitting in my kind of old archives is that if you have a router that's you know two three four five six seven years old, um, particularly if it's one of the uh, kind of major brands like Cisco or TP-Link or um, Linksys. Um, there is new software you can download that's updated that actually gives you a lot more functionality. It's called DDWRT. And it's an open source project that uh, applies to, I think, hundreds of routers. And sometimes it's very easy to, to install the software on the router. Sometimes it's very hard. But uh, 15 years ago, what I used to do with uh, um, uh, routers uh, that I would purchase is that I would purchase the router uh, if it was that was compatible with DDWRT, install it, and then you could tweak things that 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 the vendor would usually let you tweak. Things like increasing the power of the antenna or adding in very secure things, uh, 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 or more security than you're used to. But if you have an older router, um, especially if it's not your primary router, uh, if you're about ready to buy a new one or you think you need to buy one with the, the software is old and, and not very secure um, and you will buy one if you blitz your router then I would suggest that maybe uh, you can do this but if you have a router sitting around and you like to do geeky projects DDWRT is wonderful software you can install on your, your router 
do cool things like if it's got a USB port on it, plug in a USB drive and it can be shareable to your whole network. Or um, the the thing I was working with last weekend is uh, if you've got a tetherable cell phone via USB, which means you can plug it into the back of it, it routes it out so that you can share that connection. That's with, awesome. You know, router. That, yeah. that is rocking awesome. It's super cool stuff. Because usually and... your phone can only handle like five connections exactly. or something like that and so that and it's not to... very good at it either whereas there is actual routing software on there so so last weekend i figured out um this is uh uh I, this has to be a a six seven eight maybe even a ten year old uh uh a home cisco router um i took this device and i pulled the firmware off of it and then i mean it took me a while to get it done and, um, you know, but I could plug in an Android phone into it and share the connection. And then it just acted like a regular router then. And plus kept the, kept the cell phone charged too. So, um, I might take this actually and make it part of my travel kit so that I could plug my phone into it and create an instant hotspot. The problem with portable hotspots is that they have terrible range. They're not very secure. Oh, yeah. Battery life is terrible. Um, so, uh, uh, w, or, w, or, uh, excuse me, DDWRT is the name of the software. And, you know, if you like nerdy little DIY projects, this might be for you. Okay, so if you end up playing with the uh, DDWRT software as a result of hearing Jason's Geek of the Week, you you must reach out to us and let us know because you will, you know, designate yourself as, as a five-star geek for the EdTech Situation Room. So... Thankfully, <clears throat> we don't lose internet at school very often, but we did a few weeks ago, and I was actually putting my cell phone, which I maybe I've done, I, I did this last year once too, anyway, in the window to get better coverage, and hey, kids, not, don't use your computer, we're just going to watch Dr. Fryer use his, <laughs> because I can get on the cell phone network, but hey, if you had something like that, you know. Of course, hey, you better not, you know, watch out for how much data cap you have or you don't have if you're going to invite a, a group of kids to be able to tether on your phone. All right. Uh, I have really two, and then one of them is an example. Have you ever heard of the Milkshake app, Jason? No. Okay. So my wife is now a health coach. She's my health coach. And the group that she works with is really savvy with social media. And so they had a website that they had created using this free app called Milkshake. And I've actually made a little site for myself and I replaced my Twitter, my main link on my Twitter profile and Instagram with this little Milkshake app. It's mobile friendly. It looks really sharp. It's simple. There's a bunch of different templates and you build the whole thing on your phone. Super cool. It's um, Google Play and iOS compatible. Now, full disclosure, I was actually using my computer to get some links and then I was using continuity to, you know, copy them back and forth and airdropping some pictures. So I used a laptop along with my phone, but all the building happened on this free app. And if you want to take the little milkshake last page off, then you pay, but otherwise it's just completely free. So reminds me of about.me and some other websites that have been popular in the past with edgy bloggers and on, on social media <clears throat> to, um, you know, just be able to give a little bit of a digital footprint for yourself. So pretty cool. And if you have a need to make a quick website, make it mobile friendly, make it sharp, this could be something you could do for, you know, a conference presentation or, you know, something professionally. You could do that too. And then the last one, one of, oops, one of my uh, sixth grade girls today shared this website. We've been using uh, the, the uh, 
Chrome app Canvas to do sketch noting, which I really, really do like a lot. Um, but she discovered this one, and it is called Infinite Painter, and it's for iOS and Google Play. And it really reminds me of Procreate. Uh, just so many different brushes and so many possibilities. And so it works on our Chromebooks. We can just install it from the Google Play Store. Uh, but like I said, it's also iOS and pretty awesome. So if you're looking for something to do some sketch noting or drawing or, uh, or or digital art, that could be your tool. There it is. Okay, Dr. Fryer, where can people find you on the Internet? Westfryer.com on the Twitters, W. Fryer. How about you? Uh, best play to find me on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. But this here is the EdTech ed Situation Room where you can find us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Go to our website, EdTechSR.com. We really like it if you joined us once a week on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. But if you can, you can find our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can certainly um, go to our website and download tiny mp3s or go to our youtube or facebook channels also named edtech situation room where you will be able to find the video broadcast of our uh, podcast uh, you can also go to our website edtechsr.com slash links and see everything we've talked about literally since day one and we're now uh, uh, probably competing for the world record for the longest google doc and certainly the most complex one that has a lot of complicated links and indexing I bet someone's made a longer one, but we should really find that out. Because don't you think there probably is a Google, you know, world record? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, stuff. and then maybe maybe that's our goal a here. A functioning one, the longest podcast. Yeah, functioning Google. <laughs> um, and don't and forget also, our Substack. Sub yeah, that was just gonna say. Uh, go ahead, Doctor Fryer. Well, we have a Substack, so go to edtechsr.substack.com and you can subscribe to receive all of our show notes, both the ones we were able to talk about in the show, and like tonight, uh, there's about you know. 20 links that we didn't get to and we'll send all those right to your inbox hopefully mostly on fridays but you know as soon as we can after the show okay wonderful um uh, thank you for joining us we hope to see you next time in the situation room in the meantime uh good night adios